Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host as always, Chris McDaniel, a political reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today is... Jason Rosenbaum of the St. Louis Beacon. And... Joe Manis of the St. Louis Beacon. And our special guest this week is... Rick Stream, State Representative of the 90th District. So on this show, we're going to get into a little bit of the budget, and we're going to talk a little bit about what sort of changes could happen with school transfers and Medicaid expansion or Medicaid transformation. But first, Representative, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into politics? Sure. Um, I'm 64. I've lived in Kirkwood all of my life. I'm married with four children, three grandchildren. Went through Kirkwood schools, uh, went to Merrimack and Umsel, went in the Navy four years. Um, I was always involved in my community as a volunteer, certainly in the schools. I was on the school board for 12 years. Um, but I, I've uh, been involved in a lot of different activities as a volunteer in our community uh, for many, many years. Um, in uh, 2005, uh, after the special election in the, uh, the 94th district at yes. the time, um, the uh, party asked me to run in the uh, regular election in 2006, and I decided that I would after a con- consulting with uh, my family, certainly my wife, and we prayed about it a lot because it required me to, to leave a job that was going to be basically pay four times what I was going to get as a state representative. So <laughs> mm-hmm. it was a big decision for me, but I decided to, to go ahead and do it. And fortunately, I won uh, and have won re-election each year uh, since and then. And that wasn't an easy election because you actually ran against an incumbent, Jane Baghetto, yes. who had won the special election. <laughs> That's so. correct. Uh, Democrat, yeah, and, and Representative Streams, a Republican. Right. So, how what was that, what was that election like? Well, it was it was very tough. Uh, they uh, we had to do a lot of door to door, and uh, it was very grueling, very hard. That's how you win state uh, representative races. Certainly in these competitive districts, you go door to door and meet the voters. So it was it was it required uh, a lot of work, eight hours um, a day, and we just went door to door. Um, and just made sure that we uh, we met all the voters. I, I lost about 15 pounds during that campaign. Yeah, mm-hmm. I covered that election, and that one was that one of the more vigorous uh, state rep elections that I've ever covered. It's fascinating. Now, how long have you been budget chairman, which explains why we're going to talk about the numbers today. Sure. I've been the chairman just uh, this one term, uh, uh, last year and or this year that we're in, and uh, will be next year. I've been on the budget committee all seven years. I've been in okay. legislature. I was the vice chairman for four years. And I was on the budget. I asked to be on the budget committee when I came into the legislature because um, my work for the Department of Defense was in budgeting. I was a budget project manager for 30 years for them. So it kind of fit in. That's a different type of budget than the state budget. But And I was also heavily involved in the budget of the school district while I was on the school board. Because the House Budget Committee and this isn't to flatter you or anything, but it is probably one of the most important committees in the legislature. And whoever is the chairman of the House uh, Budget Committee or the Senate Appropriations Committee yeah. um, is looked to a lot because the budget is probably the biggest thing the legislature does. So what is kind of the responsibilities of the chairman? What kind of role do you play in this committee that is so important in many respects? You're right about the importance of the budget. It probably... Uh, affects virtually every piece of legislation uh, that, that that comes through the legislature. Every bill uh, that ha- has a fiscal note, and sometimes it may be zero, but most of the time it has some type of uh, fiscal note, which means there's a cost to the state. So the budget's important. Uh, the budget chairman basically runs the committee. 
Now, we have a good staff, a professional staff headed up by Mike Price in the budget office. So uh, with term limits, you need a good professional staff there right. that, that moves, uh, that stays there while the legislators move on. But I, I think that my goal has been to, uh, number one, ensure that we pass a budget. As Chris Kelly, the long-term Democrat in the House who was the budget chairman back in the 80s and 90s, said the budget chairman in the House and the Senate approach chair in the Senate are the only two that can fail uh, during a, a session because if they don't pass a budget on time and it's constitutionally mandated, we have basically failed. So we have to get it out of the House by the end of March, and it has to be approved uh, through the Senate and through conference committee. Correct by the week, the Friday before we are constitutionally uh, finished the session, which is in the middle of May every year. So that's our job is to is to pass the budget. Now, of course, in addition to that, we want to make sure the budget is balanced. And that goes to the whole process of how we do the budget. We start with a consensus revenue estimate. Which, which they're now in. working on that's right correct. now. I've talked to the, um, the uh, Governor Nixon's budget director, budget director just yeah, about a week ago, and she was talking about where they were now in developing this estimate. So our listeners know this is a an estimated of how much they think the state's going to bring in, and this is an agreement that is reached. They haggle about it between the administration, whoever's governor, and both uh, the budget and the appropriate chief in the two chambers. That's correct. It's, um, it's, it is an agreement that, that does occur between the House, the Senate, and the governor's office, and sometimes the University of Missouri gets involved too. So um, it's it's a uh, and that determines the percentage of increase or actually decrease. Uh, we did have that one year when the recession hit uh, of what we think the general revenue is going to be in in uh, for the upcoming fiscal year. So basically, it's a it's an estimate of what we think the revenues will be for the next fiscal year. So it's an estimate that goes that looks out seven to nineteen months in the future, mm-hmm. and what we think the economy is going to be and how well uh, that will determine the revenues that come into the state. And the revenues are basically, as I said, the general revenue. Now, that's just one-third of the revenues that we have in our budget. And the revenues for general revenue come from income tax, which is the biggest part of it, Yes. sales, sales tax. tax. Those two alone are over 90% of the, of the general revenue budget. But then we have, um, we have uh, let's see, income tax, sales tax, use tax, capital gains tax, and corporate tax mm-hmm. are the five major taxes that fit into the general revenue budget. So um, if, if the economy's rolling good, people are working, they're paying more income tax or buying more things or buying it. So sales tax is up, capital gains tax is up, corporate tax, it's all up. If, if we're in, a, in the middle of a recession or, you know, just kind of puttering along, then you're going to see it a 2 to 3% growth in general revenue. Well, like last uh, session, you were involved in the um, debate when it turned out that they were going to end up with some unexpected additional money. Right. Uh, this happened in the spring, and so you were key in trying to negotiate something with the governor as far as how to use that some of that extra money for the uh, capital propos- improvements. Yeah, for the capital improvements and for the uh, proposed new office building and That's some other correct. things, which right now I find understand are all in limbo. Correct? The governor has withheld that money um, as he's allowed to do. I mean, uh, we we pass what we hope is a balanced budget every year through the legislature, but then we turn it over to the governor. He can veto budget items. He has line item veto right. in Missouri. The president does not. Uh, and he can also withhold money. Which the president cannot. That's correct. So uh, Missouri's governor uh, has some has some tools that, that the president does not have as far as ensuring that the budget is 
is balanced at the end of the year. It's his responsibility to make sure there's enough revenue in the till to pay the bills uh, that come uh, due during the fiscal year. And, and I guess the other parts of the budget, some of a lot of it comes from the federal yes. government. And then there are also direct revenue sources that go to direct programs like conservation, for example. That's yeah, correct. Yeah, over which the legislature really doesn't have that much control, correct? That's correct. We have to appropriate the $24.8 billion that's in this fiscal year's budget, the 2014 budget. Um, but it's roughly split by a third. Right, A third right. for general revenue, a third for federal funding, and a third for the other appropriations, as we call them. The federal funds come down in three primary a- areas. Uh, Medicaid is right. a big one. Um, education is another one, and highways. And they have all three of those areas have heavy strings attached. We can't move the money anywhere. We have to use it exactly the way they say it. The other third of the budget in revenue is from other appropriations, which have been carved out by the legislature over the years for special purposes. For instance, as you mentioned, conservation, that's the uh, eight cent sales tax right. that goes directly into the conservation budget, which explains why we have some of the finest conservation yes, facilities in the country. It's considered yeah. world class. That's right. It really is nice. Um, a couple of the other areas uh, of special appropriations is the state gas tax, mm-hmm. yes. uh, which goes for highways. And another area is, uh, of course, the gaming and lottery funding, which mm-hmm. goes to education. Yeah, because my point was for our listeners is to understand that really the uh, General Assembly actually only can play around with about a third of the budget. The other parts are pretty much set. That's correct, especially the federal section. Now, we can move some of that gaming and lottery money around. Certainly in education, we can supplant some general revenue with the, with the gaming funds. Uh, the education folks don't like that because it's all up to how much people spend at the casinos, basically, or in the lottery. So, but we do have a little bit of flexibility there. But for the most part, you're right, uh, Joe, we do have to just uh, deal with the general revenue budget. But we do have to appropriate everything. If it's not appropriated, the governor cannot spend it. He can't withhold it. He can't do anything to it. So what is, what's kind of your, it's still early. You haven't done the consensus revenue yet. But what is kind of your expectations for the 2015 budget process. It'll happen in 2014, but it'll be the 2015 budget. Which begins July 1st. That's correct. July 1st, 2004, next year, 14. Well, of course, we're starting the process now with the consensus revenue estimate, and the polit- politicians are not involved in that process. Uh, uh, it's just mainly the staff, the House budget staff and the Senate budget appropriate staff and then the governor's folks. And like I said before, the Univers- University of Missouri gets involved uh, somewhat in that too. It's basically econom- economists get together and they figure out what the what the economy is going to be like a year and a half from now. So it's uh, one of those swags, as we say. Um, <laughs> swags? <laughs> some, some, some hip-hop fans are going <laughs> to appreciate that. <laughs> well, uh, well, no, it's just... Uh, you know what it is. Anyway, so it's um, uh, it's a guess. It's a guess, mm-hmm. and uh, that's that's what we do. But so that process starts now. When we get into uh, the, the, of course, the governor's staff has already submitted. Uh, their, his departments have already submitted the budgets to for their departments to the governor's uh, folks, Linda Lubring, and uh, they uh, the governor will present his budget to the, the general assembly in January. In the meantime, of course, we'll have already started working in the House and the Senate on uh, we're going to have hearings. I'm going to have some budget transparency hearings in December to start bringing in some of the departments to, to look uh, at their budgets. Uh, the individual in the House, we have six appropriations committees. 
that will look at the various aspects of their budget right away in January. Since this is not an election year, we'll ha- our committees are intact. They'll be able to start working as soon as we go into session, and they'll be able to start looking at the budget pieces because what they'll do is their recommendations come to the full budget committee, and then uh, we'll vote uh, the, the entire recommendation out of the budget committee in early March. It goes to the House floor for debate. We'll finalize it in the House, and then we send it over to the Senate uh, at the end of March. That's kind of the process. It's um, uh, it's it's pretty much a process that's been followed for many, many years, as I understand it. Certainly, if you ask Chris Kelly, he would tell you that it has been. Uh, but it, every year, our new numbers, new ideas, new decisions um, that are made by the appropriations chairs as well as the budget chairman – and so you're going to get a different look for every budget uh, from w- one year to the next. So a lot of the issues that I think we're going to talk about next kind of get intertwined with the budget. For example, the school transfer situation. That's correct. Um, how is that issue going to impact the budget process, especially with schools like Normandy asking for more money as their students have gone to other districts? Sure. It's a good question, and it's one that's right at the forefront of the the budget process for education. If we backtrack a little bit and just say that we're here at this point because of a law that was passed 20 years ago that basically said that if a district went unaccredited, which there were none back then, that um, any student who lived in that district, not just the public school students, mm-hmm. but any student, right. could go to an adjoining school district in the county in which they lived. So um, that process began in earnest in 2006 when St. Louis Public Schools went unaccredited. I went to the legislature in 2007, actually filed a bill then to improve the St. Louis Public Schools based on things we'd done in in Kirkwood while I was on the school board. It didn't go anywhere uh, because the unions were against it, but but that began the lawsuit, which is the Turner case. So now we are here now after a couple of starts and stops with the courts, we're now at a point where we have two unaccredited districts in the St. Louis metropolitan area and one in Kansas City that are unaccredited and a number that are provisionally accredited, 11 that are provisionally accredited, that uh, could go unaccredited, who knows. Uh, so we're we're faced with the situation where we've got students now, roughly 20% from both Riverview and Normandy have left their districts to go out to Francis Howell, Kirkwood, Melville. Those are the three main districts. But Almost every county district has received students. The law, the way it was interpreted by the courts, was that uh, the losing district had to pay a full tuition rate uh, for the student transferring into the district where they were going. So in other words, in Clayton, if a student transferred to Clayton, they got 19 – Clayton received $19,000. Kirkwood is $12,000. Some of the other districts are higher and lower Mm -hmm. than that. So it's it's a formula that – is going to cause these losing st- school districts, in this case Normandy and and Riverview, to, to lose go, millions, to lose millions and go bankrupt. Uh, Normandy first, and in, in this fis- this probably fiscal year, and then uh, Riverview probably the next year, depending on how much money they have in their reserves. So, the the goal of the legislation that's being crafted right now by myself and other people, there'll be a lot of bills filed on this whole issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my bill is going to deal with four areas. Number one, we have to be able to protect the receiving districts from being overwhelmed with students. There has to be some formula to protect them from take, being forced to take more students than they actually have room for. Number two, we have to deal with the problem of the losing districts uh, going bankrupt. 
and we may we may decide upon a, a financial uh, formula that uh, allows them to send less money uh, to uh, to the receiving districts, whether it's a percentage or an actual number. We've been doing this for 30 years with the VIC program, where we've now settled on a $7,200 per student number, which is obviously less than Clayton's uh, per per student cost, less than Kirkwood's, less than most. But it's the number that's been settled upon after almost 30 years now. So we'll we'll have that in in the bills. The and I and I don't think those two areas will cause much controversy, although I've yeah. heard from some people that it might. Um, the area that I think we're going to run into some trouble is what do we do with the remaining students in these uh, unaccredited districts, both long-term and short-term. Long-term is pretty easy. We've, we've got to get involved in these districts sooner. And when I say we, I don't mean the legislature. I mean the education establishment. And by that, I mean the school board association, the school administrators association, the teacher unions, DESE, though the state board of education. They need to be looking at these districts before they're even provisionally accredited and say, uh, what can we do to start to stop the slide downhill and start moving them back up? A lot of it is, if you talk to people in these districts, it's not necessarily money. It's leadership. Leadership at the board level, the, the pr- superintendent level, principals. Principals after superintendent is probably the, s- the second most important person in the district because they hire and evaluate the teachers in their schools, school buildings. And, of course, the teachers have to be good, too. So a lot of things will happen from the long term. The short term is where we're going to run into a lot of trouble. And that's what I was going to ask because, you know, you've talked a little bit about changing the formula so that Normandy and Riverview Gardens would be paying out less. You know, what 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 should these districts do until they get to that point where Normandy, you know, they're already looking at, you know, facing some layoffs here? and may, maybe even bankruptcy. It's a tough problem right now. I have talked to the uh, Commissioner of Education in Missouri, Dr. Castro, about mm-hmm. this a number of times. Uh, I'm not sure she's bought into it yet. I'm not sure the other districts would buy into it. But I, I told her that my bill will have an emergency clause in it that, uh, if passed, uh, would make the funding formula that we've set up retroactive to this school year that we're in right now. Hmm. Right. Uh, normally when a bill is passed, it goes into effect if it doesn't have an emergency clause on yeah, October August, the, August yeah. the 28th. Correct. All right. Hmm. So uh, if you have an emergency clause, uh, the moment the governor signs it, it goes into effect. So if we can get a bill passed early in the legislature and the governor signs it, these are huge ifs, by the way. Uh, have right. you talked to the governor's office? I, I have. Okay, so have you got any signals from them as no. to whether or not – okay. No, no signals on anything regarding uh, my legislation. And I've only talked once, so it's not like um, – sure. but I've talked to Chris Castro about it quite a bit. Now, she isn't – she works for the governor, obviously, but she's not in his inner circle. I mean, there, there, are, the, there are the policy issues with any bill, and then there's political issues. Does right. the person, the legislator, the governor want to – how does he or she see it politically for them? And I'm not using that. I don't mean that in a bad way. I'm just saying that sometimes we have positions that uh, we've taken, and it's it may be uh, hard or difficult for us to change those positions, or we just don't want to get involved, but we, we have a stake in the issue. So I'm not being critical. I'm just saying I think the governor, uh, and I think he's started to get involved in this issue. If, if Any bill we pass has to go through the House, the Senate, and the governor. So if we don't have the governor on board to whatever we're proposing, he, he'll veto it. Now, how are the outstate legislators in some of the rural areas 
that you've been talking to, what have you been hearing from them? Are they supporting some of these changes or not? That's a good question. The, uh, the, the big divide in Missouri legislature is not between Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative. It's between city and country. And the city is us <laughs> in the urban, suburban areas, and the country yep. is the rural area. The, the folks out in the rural areas, and they're almost primarily Republican, right. um, are, they see the world differently than we do here. And, um, and I'm not being critical at all. It's just that they, they look at it differently. So um, on an issue like this, they, they're superintendents who are like gods out in those districts. Uh, they, they are the, probably the highest paid person in that district. And the entire school district is probably contained within the state representative's district. So they can make or break a state representative. They have an immense power mm-hmm. out there, whereas the superintendents here uh, don't. Um, right. But they have been pretty much against any type of reform that we've proposed over the years uh, so that um, this is going to be one of those issues that we're going to have to really work with them to try to get them to see the benefits of doing things uh, legislatively that will only affect the unaccredited and provisionally accredited district. Now, why have they been why have they been such staunch, staunch opponents of any change? And that includes like charter schools, uh, okay. which are public schools, uh, and we, we barely got a bill passed to Shara Jones, who I think you've interviewed mm-hmm. um, here in the past. She's treasurer now in St. Louis, but it was her bill. We barely got it passed, and that was to um, improve the quality of the charter schools. The reason the rural districts are opposed to any of these reform measures is because they feel that will come to their district and they will lose control. And they, in fact, they feel like if a charter school started in a, in a rural district, it would eliminate the public school and they would lose their jobs. So they're pretty much opposed to any reform that goes on. But uh, I mean, but as far as the transfer situation, why would they be have a strong view on that? I'm not sure that how strong their view is on. For instance, my recommendations, which would only apply to provisionally accredited and unaccredited districts. Um, but keep in mind, nine of the provisionally accredited districts are out in the rural areas. Southeast mm, has got sure. several of them down there. So I think in answer to your question, the they are afraid that any change in the way they're doing business – uh, will cause them to lose control and power and jobs. Now, the bill you've described is is pretty narrowly curtailed to dealing with the school transfer situation. How concerned are you that there are going to be a lot of other contentious education issues tacked on, like teacher tenure, and what will happen if those issues are tacked on? Well, it's part of the legislative process uh, that is frustrating at times, uh, but necessary. I mean, uh, who was at Winston Churchill said democracy is a terrible form of government, but it's, but it's the, the best, best one, one ever devised by man, I guess. So uh, it it's, can be frustrating. We're going to have those issues for sure. Um, there's, there are two ways to do a bill. One is to try to pass it through as clean as possible. And as, it, as the bill handler, I'll have the ability to to keep amendments off as best I can unless I'm overridden on the floor of the House, basically, was where it would happen, yeah, or in be- committee. Because the, just so people understand, Speaker Jones has been in favor of some changes in teacher tenure and some of this. So it's not like it's just a few legislators out in the, uh, you know, <laughs> in the back row. Right. It's yeah. the— Oh, the leadership. It's, yeah, it's the leadership. Yeah, it clearly has. And I think uh, Speaker Tilly, prior to him, was in favor of some of these uh, ideas, too, simply because— they have looked at the situation, the statistic I just mm-hmm. mentioned, and some of the other issues that, uh, that clearly are not um, 
don't don't put a positive spotlight on the on the public education establishment in the state. And they said, look, changes have to be made, and changes have occurred in other states around the country that have uh, that they think have have been a positive influence on the type of education kids get. We're going to. Um, we're going to look at all of those issues. I'll talk to Speaker Jones about about his. Uh, he and I have talked just briefly about this, and I've told him what I'm trying to do, and he says, "Fine, uh, go for it," because he knows it's an important issue for the state that has to be dealt with. We have to fix it this year. I'm, I'm hoping we can. So let's switch gears quickly to okay. the other thing that you're involved <laughs> in, which is Medicaid. You're, you're the other w- committee you've been sitting which, on. Which also will affect the budget as yes, well. Go ahead. And, and you you have been one of many legislators who are on these interim committees looking at ways to change the Medicaid program. I think the question a lot of political observers are wondering is if – for example, the House pushes forward a Medicaid transformation bill that makes changes to Medicaid. Is that also going to include expansion for, for adults, or is it just going to be changes to the program and, and no expansion, in your view? I don't know at this point what the final bill will look like. We've been uh, having these interim committee hearings on Medicaid reform and transformation. Representative Barnes has been handling those committees. I'm, I'm sitting on, the, on that committee, too. Um, and we're still having meetings. We're having meetings next week, the 19th and 20th, and we'll probably have some more. So uh, we're still going through uh, a lot of testimony, trying to get ideas. I think everybody agrees that the system we have now, the Medicaid system we have now, where we spend $9 billion of state money, uh, of the $24 billion, we spend $9 billion on Medicaid. Although that's money that comes from the yes, federal government. That's the, yes. Of the $24.8 billion in the budget, uh, $9 billion is spent on Medicaid payments. Most of that, uh, a little over half, is federal money. Well, actually, isn't it about, 60, about, about two-thirds? Because I think, in fact, the federal well, yeah, the, reimbursement rate is going to go up to like 68%, I think. Well, the, uh, there are, again, the three areas that we fund. Right. We fund Medicaid, like every program, with some general revenue, some federal, and some others. And some of the other funding is money that's been washed through the federal spigot, so to speak. Right. So it's it's I guess you could say it is federal money too, but clearly most of it is coming from other than general revenue. Correct. But um, it's still a number that is pretty large. And when you talk to people who are in the system, and I have constituents who are in the system, they say the system is broken. They've got their they, their spend down formulas are all messed up. I went down with one constituent to the county office, state office down in South County. They had no records for her for nine months, even though she'd been submitting bill after bill after bill. So there's clearly uh, problems with the system. Waste, fraud, and abuse is a term that's used a lot. Um, So in answer to your question, we're looking at those issues. If we're going to change the system to make it better, we need to find out what's wrong with it and work on that as well as then decide if we're going to expand or take take additional money that would um, hopefully go into a system that would work better for the people. This is kind of a surprising thing to say because in 2007, the legislature reinvented Medicaid as Mo Health Net under Governor mm-hmm. Matt Blunt. Are, right. you, are you implying that those changes were unsuccessful? the program? I think anytime you have a massive bureaucracy, and I worked in a bureaucracy for 30 years for the Department of Defense, uh, you're going to have a lot of um, problems with uh, how the money is spent. If it's your own money, you pretty much make sure how you spend your money, including in a business. But in a bureaucracy uh, where it's not your money and you're not really 
being held to a um, I don't want to say a standard, but you're not you're not responsible for I won't say malfeasance or anything like that. But I'm, you're, it's just not as concerning to you as to how the money is spent. And I think you've got a system that's that is growing bigger and bigger every year. We add about 150 to 200 million dollars in Medicaid spending because people are getting older. Us baby boomers are moving in, and a lot of it's for nursing home coverage. Yes, when, let's. Uh, make that clear. I mean, for, against, whatever. Right. A lot of this money ends up going to pay for uh, nursing home care for people who have either done the spend down or who are low income or disabled to begin with. That's correct. Uh, and and that's, that's an issue we've looked at in our hearings is how to deal with the, with the increasing cost to Medicaid of, for the nursing homes. And if we can, there are programs to establish that people can have, stay in their homes and get care in their homes. They're, those programs are already there. They're not being utilized as much as we thought they would be, I think. So it's, it's clearly we are looking at this whole problem. We may, we may do things like setting up, uh, for, if we do any kind of expansion, setting up like health savings accounts uh, here in the state so that people can get money into an account and then they can use it the way they see fit. I mean, a lot of this, of course, is contingent upon what's happening at the federal level. Um, We've discovered that as we've tried to move through this process. I mean, as it stands now, uh, Missouri, for adults, we're not excluding the kids, um, it's roughly if you make above 19% of of poverty level, you don't qualify for Medicaid. That's correct. Now, the – most states, it's around 100% or more. The federal expansion requires that you get up to 138%. That's correct. So – and the hospitals, I know, are pressing mm-hmm. to get the expansion because they know, although the federal government has delayed for a year, at within a year or so, the federal government is saying they're going to get rid of those special payments for hospitals for taking care of uninsured people. So with all that as a backdrop, are you getting a lot of pushback from hospitals who want the expansion because, as as we've mentioned before, the federal government would pay all the expansion costs for three years and then at least 90% thereafter. Right. Or is there a feeling that, no, we we just can't go there and we're going to do try to do X, Y, and Z? Or, I mean, if you want to lay a little bit of that out. Sure. Basically, the Republican caucus is against Medicaid expansion. I'm talking about the House Republican caucus. I think the Senate probably is, too, for three reasons, policy reasons, financial reasons, and political reasons. I'm not sure I have enough time to explain all of those, but policy, we just, we're, not in, we're not in favor of increasing people on the federal dole, basically. So that's able-bodied people. Correct. Um, number, from a financial standpoint, uh, even though they say it's free money, it's really not free money. It's money that's being paid into the, uh, into the federal treasury or borrowed from China. And we're not inclined as Republicans to want to increase the federal debt. So that's financially. Number three, politically, none of us campaigned on this. We all campaigned against increasing programs like this. And frankly, since Barack Obama and Jay Nixon were elected in 2008, Republicans have gained 21 seats in the Missouri House. So the people of Missouri aren't in favor of this either. Now, having said all of that, we're still looking for ways that we can improve the Medicaid system in Missouri. And so the hospitals have been putting tremendous pressure on the Republican caucus. There's no question about that. And for you know they they're losing three quarters of a trillion dollars uh, in Medicare payments, and they're losing the dish payments. Correct for the uh, uninsured. Correct. So that's why I think mainly why they are really trying to get the Medicaid expansion money because they are losing so much money from the federal government through another door, and we understand that. And we have a lot of friends in the hospitals 
association in the hospitals. I worked in a hospital for seven years. I understand this. But so we're, that's why we're trying to look at something that will, we think will be, will make the system better, and maybe it'll include some expansion. We do know that probably at this point in time, with all the problems with Obamacare federally, that if we came up with a plan that we thought was good for Missourians and presented it to the federal government, they would probably give us a waiver on it. And, and it might include some expansion, it, but it certainly would include a lot of reform and transformation. Now, the rural, we were talking about rural before. In this case, it's a little different in that uh, if you look at any map, actually a number of people who would be added to the Medicaid program if there is expansion would actually be in rural Missouri. And, of course, they've been hearing, they've been getting a lot of pressure from the rural hospitals. Right. Um, so it's the the dynamic, I mean, at least on the surface, appears to be a little different compared to the transfer situation in that some rural legislators are getting a lot of pressure to go for expansion. I mean, what are you hearing since you've had these meetings? I mean, is there a change of dynamic that way that could affect when the legislature goes back into session in January? I think there is going to be, uh, I won't say a change, but I think there's going to be some shifting of some ideas on this. I, again, it depends on the legislation that we that we come up with. And Jay Barnes is working very hard, and I've, I've had some meetings with him, too, along with other legislators, to try to come up with a plan that, that will get a buy-in from most of the legislature. Um, so, And it's really not so much an ideological issue as it is a financial issue for a lot of these rural legislators whose hospitals and chambers of commerce have, have put a lot of pressure on them because they see the federal money coming into the, into the district, and it's money that will help generate... Uh, buying power and jobs and things like that. So they're, And for those rural communities, unlike here where we live in this great metropolitan area of St. Louis, where there's always work and there's the hospitals are, it seems like they're expanding every year. Although Connect Care uh, just, just... That's true, there. they did. Uh, that um, in the rural areas, if the hospital goes under, that really shuts down the communities out there. So we're, we're attuned to that. Um, I think we'll, we'll come to some kind of compromise. Okay. Uh, switching gears for the end, uh, with you being in your last year, mm-hmm. where are you looking next? Politically, I'm assuming. Yes. You're asking. <laughs> uh, well, a, a number of people around the state have asked me to run for the state Senate when Eric Schmidt terms out uh, in 2016. You heard it here first, folks. Uh, I'm, he already filed something with the Missouri I know. I'm being, I'm being a little. But continue. I was being a little. I was being a little I was a Boy Scout. You always have to be prepared. <laughs> uh, so I have, uh, I have filed, but that doesn't mean I'm actually going to run. I'm just, I'm seriously thinking about it. I clearly have to uh, clear it with my family. Um, it's, it's a big financial responsibility as well as a time commitment. As, as I said, I've got my kids. They all live close. My grandkids live close. I love seeing them, and I, um, I'll, I'm seriously thinking about it. But I've, I, I, I'm, I probably will get to the 2014 election before I make a final decision on it. Well, Representative, thank you very much for joining us this week. To close us out here, uh, you can read all of my stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can read all of Joe and Jason's stories at stlbeacon.org. You can follow me on Twitter at at csmcdaniel. You can follow Jason on Twitter at... Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Joe on Twitter. At jmanis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And you can follow the representative on Twitter. At Rick Stream. Very good. Well, we'll be back next week. Until then, so long.